This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. It's been termed the bleakest warning yet. The message this report sends is clear. Climate change isn't lurking around the corner waiting to pounce. It's already upon us, raining down blows on billions of people. So dire was the picture painted by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in a report released yesterday that the UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres described it as an atlas of human suffering. This report reveals how people on the planet are getting clobbered by climate change. No inhabited region will escape the effects of rising temperatures and ever more extreme weather events, and some of the impacts are already irreversible. The findings of the IPCC report we are releasing today are clear. The stakes for our planet have never been higher. Still, it did provide a glimmer of hope, a window to act. It's not a big window, but it's there. A short time when we can avoid the worst. I know people everywhere are anxious and angry. I am too. Now is the time to turn rage into action. Every fraction of the degree matters. Every voice can make a difference. And every second counts. But with everything else that's happening in the world, will we take this chance in time? And what can we do to adapt to a warming world? From The Guardian, I'm Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Damien Carrington, as The Guardian's environment editor, you've spent the last couple of days ingesting the latest report from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Give me some background. What do we need to know about this report? Well, the IPCC is an extraordinary uh, scientific effort. I actually think it's probably the greatest scientific endeavour in history and it involves thousands of experts, physical, social, economic experts, all combining to produce um, a report based on, in this case, 34,000 different studies. So it's this amazing authoritative synthesis of everything that we know so far about climate change. And then the other thing that really gives it its power is that every government in the world, 195 of them, looks it over and approves it. And these reports come out in several parts, don't they? Just locate us a bit. This is what, the second part of the sixth report? That's right. It was seven years since the last one, and they split it into three. The first part is the physical science of climate change. That came out uh, in August. 
last year and uh, concluded that it was unequivocal that uh, humanity was causing the climate crisis and that it was affecting every part of the world. The second part, which is the one we're talking about today, is about the impacts of climate change on uh, people, the living world, and also what we can do to adapt to that. And then in April, there'll be a third part, which is uh, how the world could reduce emissions and try and end the climate emergency. Before we get into some of the details, what's the big picture from this report? What's at stake? There's a really striking line, which is the very final line of the summary, which itself is 40 pages long. And what it says is that any further delay right now in terms of acting in order to both uh, cut emissions and also adapt to the impacts of climate change means we're going to miss what it calls a brief and rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable future for all. I mean, in, in a sense, what, when you ask what's at stake, it's, it's kind of everything. I mean, this never was going to make for uplifting reading. We've been following the climate crisis for decades. But this report really doesn't pull any punches, does it? So it's a grim assessment. What are some of the key takeaways and findings? You're right. It's um, it's pretty grim. Uh, it's, it's a massive report. It's a thousand pages long. It covers pretty much every aspect of the climate and weather and of human society, and every part of the world is affected as well. But to you know, pick out a few things, it says that already half the people in the world—that's you know three and a half billion people—are highly vulnerable to climate impacts, and that will get worse. Half the world already suffers uh, severe water shortages and deadly heat stress is going to go up. It's already affects about one in three people and that could easily go to half or even three quarters in the future. Flooding is mentioned. There's a big risk around the coast in particular because sea levels are rising. About a billion people could be exposed by about 2050 to serious flooding every year. Diseases uh, often thrive in warmer temperatures and as uh, insects and other vectors spread around the world. And it will hit food as well. Even in the best case scenario, we're probably going to lose about 10% of farmland in terms of just not being able to farm on that land anymore. And of course, the global population is going to rise up above 9 billion. So the kind of scope and scale of the impacts and the risk of them getting worse is pretty uh, astonishing. So these are some of the impacts we can expect to see and are seeing on on people. What about the effects on other life? Does the report say anything about the planet's biodiversity? Yeah, absolutely. The report states really plainly that animals and plants um, around the world, which make up our ecosystems, are being exposed to conditions of climate which they haven't experienced in tens of thousands of years. And nature's a very intricately balanced system whereby everything depends on everything else and when you get mismatches things start to break down you know humanity is waging a kind of a war on the natural world as it is in terms of destroying forests and and, and polluting land and washing away soils and things like that and the reason this is important is that uh, until now certainly the natural world has been an amazing buffer the oceans uh, take up a lot of co2 but they're starting to acidify and forests of course and other plants absorb lots of co2 so in the report they say that actually maintaining that resilience in nature which we really need to help us cope with the impacts of climate change will require something like 30% or even up to 50% of the earth's land and freshwater and oceans to be properly protected so species which are already half of them have been affected in terms of uh, having to respond to climate change by moving or adapting or even going locally extinct they're in just as much trouble as, as we are and we really rely on each other. 
And the report highlights the interconnectedness of the climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis and inequality as well, doesn't it? Yeah, this was really striking to me because in the past, you know, a lot of the reports have really been focused uh, on the science. But what's happened uh, more recently is more social scientists, more economists have um, got involved. And it's a really critical message, I think, from this report is the interconnectedness. You can't separate the climate crisis from the biodiversity crisis from the crisis of inequity and poverty. Even if we didn't have a climate crisis or biodiversity crisis, we still have many, many people in the world living in poverty without enough to eat. And therefore, in order to address those problems, we also have to address the problems of uh, climate and uh, biodiversity. And it's just a really strong message that if you want to effectively deal with the impacts of climate change and protect people from those, you're going to have to deal with those injustices at the same time. It is hard to comprehend the magnitude of this problem, but it's sad it can't be a surprise after all we've learned about the climate crisis over the previous decades. How have people reacted to this latest report? I think people think this is particularly important. Often these reports are described as landmarks, but um, Antonio Guterres, who's the um, Secretary General of the United Nations, said he read a lot of scientific reports, but he'd never seen one like this. And he had a very pithy phrase in, in relation to the need for very urgent adaptation. He said simply, Delay means death. Obviously, um, we've heard similar messages to this as we go along, but the only thing that the scientists can do who are reporting these things is try and sort of ramp up the urgency and make it clear that uh, you know, we're almost out of road. This is obviously quite scary, and the, the picture it paints is, is certainly bleak. But another part of the report looks at possible adaptations we can make to try and deal with some of what is coming. What are some of the key points that they raise? It's about opportunities as well as risks, and that's the positive part of the report. It's not too late. What we do today can really affect how livable the planet is for ourselves and particularly our children. And it's also about opportunities for improving people's lives. You know, flooding is going to be a really big problem, both around uh, rivers and coasts in particular. But people are recognising more and more that restoring wetlands, whether that's marshes on the coast or mangroves or trees along rivers, can be really important in terms of both slowing the flow of water and, and reducing the risks of flooding, but also uh, boosting the biodiversity. The world's urbanising really rapidly and uh, how those cities grow is going to be really important. We're a long way from being prepared for the heat that's coming. And again, actually, nature can play a part here in terms of greening cities. Trees are amazing at cooling cities. So although uh, you know, the situation is pretty dire, we still have those opportunities. How far do you think adaptation can take us? I mean, we're already at 1.1 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Are there limits where we just won't be able to adapt, where that opportunity has been lost? Absolutely. And uh, the new report coins a, a couple of phrases which were new to me, which is about uh, soft limits and hard limits of adaptation. So when they talk about soft limits, it means you haven't really got enough money or capacity or, or you know, government will to put in place things to protect water supplies, for example. But there are also hard limits when we've gone 
beyond the point of being able to adapt to them. We've already hit on some of those. Sad to say that uh, coral reefs are, are all but doomed, even at uh, one and a half degrees centigrade, certainly in, in the vast majority of the world. And that's important because they're incredible nurseries in the oceans. Lots of uh, fish and other things start their lives there. And uh, there are millions and millions of people who depend on those uh, for their livelihoods. Um, glaciers in most mountains are pretty much in permanent retreat now. And there's even talk about um, an instability in the Antarctic ice sheet, which we think we may already have passed. Now, that will take you know decades, probably centuries to unfold, but it may be that some of these pretty big cities right on the coast are, are not going to be viable in the longer term future. But uh, there's no point at which suddenly things are going to become 100 times worse or 1,000 times worse. It's a kind of slow motion disaster. How long have we got, do you think, to get our act together in reality? It's a good question, and people ask it very often. You could say this decade, certainly up to 2030, is going to be decisive. So, you know, we're less than eight years now, and some of these things that we have to do are pretty big, you know, changing our energy system, changing the infrastructure in our cities, how we travel, everything has to be done at maximum speed but it's not too late to avoid the really worst impacts I think and that's the thing that keeps me optimistic I suppose in doing this job. Damien this report has come out as the world is still reeling from the Covid pandemic. Russia has invaded Ukraine and there are obviously other conflicts going on around the globe. It's hard to see how the world is going to rally in the short time we have now to act. How are you feeling in the wake of this new report? It might surprise you, and I suppose that um, I'm generally a fairly optimistic person. And despite the gloomy and dire nature of a report like this, I think what it's doing is it's telling us what's happening. We can't say we don't know. These environmental problems won't go away. And I think the thing probably at the heart of it, which um, gives me the most hope, is that the actions that you need to take, they're all beneficial. They're all going to make our lives better. They're all going to make the world a better place to live in. Not doing them will certainly make our lives worse and will be more expensive in the longer run. Um, And I don't know, perhaps uh, some of the listeners might think I'm being a bit naive here, but um, I just hope that that kind of inexorable logic will win out in the end. Thanks, Damien. It's great to have you take us through all this. My pleasure. I hope uh, it wasn't uh, unremitting doom and gloom. Um, we have a glimmer of hope, so let's, uh, let's take it. <laughs> Thanks, Damien. Good ending on that. <laughs> Many thanks again to Damien Carrington. We've put links to the Environment Team's coverage of the IPCC report on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. Now, after today's episode, I don't need to tell you that there's a lot going on in the world. To help keep up to date with what's happening, have a listen to our podcast, Politics Weekly UK. Every Thursday, join award-winning Guardian columnist John Harris and a cast of voices from up and down the country, as well as across the political spectrum. Search for Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for today. The producer was Madeline Finlay, the sound design was by Rudy Zagaldo, and the executive producer was Danielle Stevens. 
We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.